The Kubernetes ecosystem has drastically changed how development teams ship software. While Kubernetes has provided many advancements in cloud infrastructure, it has also left organizations with massive security blind spots. KSOC was created to give developers and security teams a single control plane to harden multi-cluster Kubernetes environments through event-driven analysis, least privilege enforcement, and remediation as code. Jimmy Mesta is the co-founder and CTO of KSOC and joins the show to discuss modern Kubernetes security challenges and how security teams need to prepare for a future where Kubernetes is the top attack a target for adversaries. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeffrey. How's it going? Uh, not bad. So you work on KSOC, which is based around Kubernetes security. And obviously, Kubernetes has changed the world of infrastructure. But isn't container security already a solved problem? I wish it was, yes. So container security and Kubernetes security aren't always the same thing, right? So the container itself that's running inside of Kubernetes has certain configurations, certain ways it interacts with the kernel, settings, networking policies, et cetera. But there's also this whole orchestration layer that is Kubernetes. So I don't think it's solved. That's been proven time and time again with the folks I've been talking to. So there's still a future where we have a lot of stuff to figure out. At least that's the bet. If I stand up a Kubernetes cluster and port my application to running on that Kubernetes cluster, are there automatically, by virtue of being on Kubernetes, new security vulnerabilities that I'm exposed to? There could be, yes. So starting with the notion of porting your application over to even run in a container, there's different settings that and configurations available within that container itself that automatically sometimes translate into Kubernetes configurations. Things like what user does the container run as? Is it privileged? What kind of networking settings exist as this container spins up inside of a pod in Kubernetes? The complexity of a Kubernetes environment, you know, is not to be understated, right? Your application probably needs to talk to the API itself or could talk to the Kubernetes API. It reaches out to other cloud services. It handles secrets. These are all things that need to be considered as you kind of lift and shift an application and kind of plug it into the Kubernetes ecosystem. Can you give me an example of a security issue that a typical Kubernetes cluster might encounter? Sure. Yeah. So some of the ones that we kind of focus on that present a lot of problems comes down to role-based access control. So RBAC inside of a Kubernetes cluster is really just how you know an entity, whether it's an end user or a service account, can interact with the Kubernetes API, what objects and verbs that that particular entity can utilize to get tasks done. So RBAC itself is kind of built into Kubernetes. It's its own API endpoint, its own object, and it's up to you to configure it. So what we see oftentimes is role-based access control being overly permissive. And what that means is a given 
you know, workload inside of the cluster, maybe it has a service account that it uses, you know, a token ultimately to talk to the Kubernetes API. And that service account has too many privileges. So the kind of attack vector here is somebody compromises that running workload, that container or multiple containers, and is able to grab that particular service account token, present it to the API, and do things almost to, you know, depending on the level of access at an administrative level within the cluster. So there's lots of interesting examples of this where kind of web application flaws turn into, you know, something like remote code execution turns into a cluster compromise. And, you know, RBAC is so flexible that it is hard to get right. And we see things like that happen all the time and still kind of to this day. So a lot of this boils down to misconfiguration issues. I'd say there's a lot of misconfiguration going on. Yes, there's a mix of misconfiguration and kind of CVEs, if you will. We're seeing more and more of that where there's something deeper down in the kind of container runtime itself or or with a particular you know, kernel module or something of that nature that actually gets exploited. But for the most part, configuring Kubernetes and cloud in general is pretty tough to get right across the board. So misconfiguration is still you know rampant. We have CIS benchmarks, we have NSA hardening guidelines, we have different frameworks that help us kind of strive towards better configuration, but to do it right across the board is still challenging. So you work at KSOC, obviously, the company you founded, which stands for Kubernetes Security Operations Center. Why do I need an operations center for Kubernetes security? Yeah, that's a good question. So the impetus for KSOC was to provide a unified control plane for security practitioners to not only gather the misconfigurations and vulnerabilities and issues in distributed kind of multi-cluster environments, but to act on them. So, you know, as we've seen Kubernetes kind of explode over the years, it's really the backbone of of infrastructure these days in a lot of large organizations. So almost be described as a data center inside of a data center. And with that, you have a lot of blind spots and security teams are still kind of ramping up to this notion of containers and, and Kubernetes in general. It's a very fast moving project. The ecosystem is expanding every day. And KSOC was really born to give you that one place to go to track your progress, you know, make sure that Kubernetes is in line with the rest of your security program. So that's what we're working on. There's different facets of that inside of like Kubernetes, the data we're pulling out, the types of rules we have, how we integrate with other things, but that's really what we see the need being right now. So can you shed a little bit more light on what I would get out of a security operations center for Kubernetes? Absolutely. So SOC is kind of an overloaded term in security in general. And to us, we see a security operations center as giving you full visibility into all of your clusters, the running workloads and associated risks. Mix that with remediations through kind of a GitOps process. And I can talk about that in a little bit as well. And, you know, the first order of business for KSOC is 
understanding your environment, asset inventory, where are your clusters, what regions are they running in, how are they configured at kind of a cloud layer if you're using managed Kubernetes, things like that, because you can't really do security on assets you don't know about. So we have a full automated cluster discovery mechanism that goes out, you know, interrogates your cloud providers' APIs and subscribes to events related to managed Kubernetes and gives you kind of that high-level overview of, you know, what you have running in different environments. So that's one piece. The second piece is of any SOC historically would be shedding light on problems, right? Issues, whether they're CVEs, misconfigurations, best practices, custom rules, things that you're looking for, all of that is done through an event-driven architecture inside of KSOC. So we want to watch every revision of every entity inside of that cluster and run it through a rules engine to ultimately give you a collection of best practices, you know, again, misconfigurations that you can act on. And some of those are more critical than others. And, you know, some are of the lower sort of tier that you'll deal with later, but ultimately you should be tracking towards, you know, burning down those particular issues. So that's another piece of, you know, a classic sock. Our kind of spin on this as well is to provide remediation. And, you know, I think the SOC team, I mean, I've, I've kind of run SOC teams in the past. It's definitely a noisy operation in that you're getting a flood of alerts. Which ones are important? What are you going to do with them? And we have kind of piggybacked on, you know, like everything being stored in Git, this whole GitOps notion that what you check in ultimately gets pushed out in some way, shape, or form to one or many Kubernetes clusters. We are working on building Git integrations that let you, you know, start with a pull request versus just a single alert or a wiki article or something like that. So, you know, we talk back to Git repositories where the workload is configured and give you the starting point, which is, you know, the change in code that will ultimately fix the problem in one or many clusters or environments. When you look at the opportunity of KSOC and you see the growth of Kubernetes, are there particular areas where you feel you can grow into most specifically? Because if you look at like all of the different ways Kubernetes could be deployed, you could deploy it on-prem, you could deploy it in the cloud using a managed Kubernetes service, you could deploy it using a roll-your-own Kubernetes strategy. There's a multitude of ways you could deploy it, and there are different security issues that you can encounter across the plethora of different deployment schemas. Can you tell me, like, what's the prototypical Kubernetes deployment mechanism, and like, what do you offer that prototypical customer? Yeah, it's it's all over the place right now, right? So there's Kubernetes running anywhere you can imagine. So what we've done, you know, we're an early stage company. We have to kind of pick and choose our battles, the 80-20 rules. So what we've seen is managed Kubernetes being the most widely adopted for our kind of target end user. So a lot of EKS and a lot of AKS, which is what we support today with GKE coming very soon. And that seems to be the vast majority of kind of our early customers, which is great for us because 
those are a little, you know, in EKS cluster, you also get a little more context into the cloud environment that you're running inside, right? So that's kind of why we started with this whole cluster discovery flow, because we've noticed most people are running managed Kubernetes. As the project kind of keeps getting legs and growing, you know, people will continue to use managed Kubernetes and that's totally fine, but we'll probably see maybe this whole kind of resurrection of on-prem and do-it-yourself clusters, clusters running on physical kind of IoT devices. And our installation is agnostic to any of that, given we have access to the Kubernetes API. And that's for the time being. We are expanding into other product lines that may change that. But for you know the core pieces we just talked about, pretty much if it's Kubernetes running a moderately recent version, we will be able to get the data we need to make decisions and remediation recommendations. Areas that I'm also very interested in and that we're working on today are more in identity, you know, back to RBAC, who has access to the cluster, what service accounts are able to talk to the API, how is that access provisioned? And that's an area where we're kind of diving headfirst into because it's quite frankly, people have asked us for it as we kind of went down these customer journeys. It's a pretty hard problem, but at the end of the day, people still access clusters and how we get to that point, how we monitor it through, you know, kind of watching logs, how we detect anomalies. That's all to come in kind of the KSOC ecosystem as a whole different product line that we're really excited about. If I have an incident on my Kubernetes cluster, how does that get detected? You know, if somebody has infiltrated my Kubernetes cluster using, for example, you know, some certificate that they stole or credentials that they stole, how do you detect and exile that attacker or respond to that attacker? Yeah. In that particular scenario, let's say you checked in a certificate or some sort of authentication token for simplicity's sake and to get, and somebody took it and your Kubernetes, you know, if it's, let's say it's your kubeconfig was checked in and your Kubernetes API was sitting on the internet, you could present that kind of that credential to the API itself, authenticate and do what you need to do from an attacker's perspective, at least start poking around given your RBAC configuration. So detection in that scenario is really hard because the only real place that tells the story would be your Kubernetes API audit logs. And I would say to this day where they're underutilized from a security standpoint, again, we're hoping to change that. That's an ingest stream for us as well in our product. So, you know, you see a very rich kind of log history of who's doing what against the Kubernetes API. And you would have to very intelligently be able to tell did this credential come from a trusted place? And luckily, we have a lot of kind of SSO, IDP integrations now that can force MFA or short-lived credentials. But if it's a hard-coded credential, you're going to have to look at things like within that log entry, it's source IP address, which is obviously very loose and being accurate or detectable against anything mixed with 
deny statements. So like, is that person getting denied by the API for the type of action that they're performing? And then you'd have to generate an anomaly that says, hey, this looks like a suspicious user. We need to automatically revoke this particular credential. So I think we have a long way to go till we get there, unfortunately. And keep your Kubernetes API off the internet, I guess, too, is the other helpful part of that. It's not foolproof, but it's definitely helpful. Is that a regular problem, people leaving their Kubernetes API access open on the internet? Oh, yeah. I think it's kind of the default in kind of the managed Kubernetes environments if you want to get up and running quickly. And if you're at a large established organization with a proper kind of Kubernetes story, probably not, but it's still all over the place in terms of like what's open in the internet and not. So it's, I think Rory McCune, I think it was him. He did like, he went on census.io. It was like last week or something. And was like, Hey, there's like a million Kubernetes API endpoints, like open to the internet still. Yeah. Does that mean they're vulnerable? Like maybe not, but you're definitely setting your attack surface up for failure if you keep those things sitting on the wider internet. There's a term you've probably heard called cryptojacking, where somebody malicious manages to install Bitcoin mining software on your cluster, and then it just runs there and mines Bitcoin. Is that a frequent problem for Kubernetes clusters? Yeah. I don't know why crypto mining, crypto jacking has become kind of the de facto attack inside of containerized environments. I mean, I guess I have a hunch. It's because it goes largely undetected mixed with Kubernetes actually being a pretty good place to mine cryptocurrency due to it's kind of like these nodes are fairly beefy, the auto scaling. And I think it's still a problem. It's more of a drive-by sort of thing, opportunistic sort of attack vector. You know, JW Player, their engineering team, they put out a really good kind of post-mortem article. This is probably two years ago. And it was titled something like how a cryptocurrency miner made its way onto our internal Kubernetes cluster. And it really outlined the problem that we have with misconfiguration. So kind of the attack path really was somebody spun up a network observability utility inside of the Kubernetes cluster. You know, we'll say the SRE team said, hey, I'm going to purchase or use this tool that's going to help me gain some insight into my cluster. They installed it into the cluster. And what ended up happening is they probably didn't do a full code review of all of the manifests that generated this particular utility. And it had a service with a type of load balancer, which really is telling the Kubernetes API, especially if you're an EKS or a managed environment, go give me an external load balancer and a public IP address. So what happened is this utility spun up you know, a load balancer in ELB or ALB inside of AWS with a dashboard attached to it for, you know, the ops team to use internally. And somebody found it on the internet and this dashboard had a built-in shell, like its own little utility in the browser that you could use to kind of troubleshoot some things and gain access to the cluster. 
There was no authentication on this dashboard. It was never meant to be on the internet. And somebody came in, found it, got to the shell, realized that this was a privilege pod, meaning that there was really no kind of classic like restrictions on what system calls could be made from this process inside of the cluster. And they were able to ultimately escape out of the context of that container, which was this dashboard. And they were root on the node itself that was running that pod. And once they were on the node, they installed crypto jacker, you know, dot sh, whatever the malware was, and they planted it there and left it, you know, and that means Kubernetes wasn't really aware of it. And the only way they found out was through like a data dog alert. Like there was, you know, this node 37 or whatever it was, was pegging CPU at hundred percent. They looked into it and realized it was, you know, this pod was highly misconfigured. Like it, it had tons of access to do, you know, whatever it needed to. And somebody took advantage of that. So Yes, that's a long-winded way of saying crypto jacking is still a thing. It will continue to be a thing until we kind of lock down our configurations. So do you think like from the, I mean, this is getting a little off topic, but from an ROI perspective, is there something better that an attacker could do with all those spare compute cycles across a Kubernetes cluster? It depends what their intention is, right? I think Kubernetes is a good point to bounce off into other parts of your cloud environment. If you are looking to steal data, right? And you get into a Kubernetes environment, access to the API, you can dump environment variables. Ultimately, your pivot into like an RDS database or your pivot into KMS, it's there. You're one step away from being able to actually cause some pretty severe damage from like a data leakage perspective. I do believe cryptocurrency mining is kind of the lowest barrier to entry. So the ROI might be seemingly low, right? If you install it on one node, like what are you actually getting out of that? You're just really hoping that nobody catches you for some extended period of time. But the real ROI for me in like when you get into more, I guess, sophisticated attackers would be using Kubernetes to pivot elsewhere, you know, dump data from this table in this database to go grab an S3 bucket. Because once you're inside, you know, on a node, you're going to be able to see and collect a lot more. So if you're very targeted and you want social security numbers and you know they're, you know, potentially in this database somewhere, you would probably use Kubernetes as your launch point and you would have a much higher value if that was your target. But crypto is easy and you can almost script it. Like this stuff's quasi wormable, right? Like you could probably write a worm or some sort of scanner that goes and finds this pattern of exposed dashboard. You know that this thing is open, you dump this payload, you elevate privileges, it can be automated, you know, 99% of it. So I think that's why it's so common. So one of the ways that you secure Kubernetes clusters is with entitlement management. And if you look at entitlements, can you describe what that actually means for a Kubernetes owner? So if I'm trying to have my infrastructure managed in a way that 
has the privileges, the entitlements over my infrastructure properly managed, what does that look like and how is that configured for a responsibly managed Kubernetes cluster? Yeah, you know, this kind of starts in the cloud in IAM world, right? It's an ongoing discussion point, problem, what have you, even inside of cloud environments where you have IAM policies that may not match the you know, desired state of least privilege, whatever that may be, right? Least privilege is kind of is a hope and a dream in a lot of environments. So inside of Kubernetes, what we've learned is humans are still talking to the Kubernetes API. And RBAC is messy enough to throw your hands up in the air and give that person or that entity too many entitlements to do too many things inside of the cluster. So you know, we look for things like who is bound to the cluster admin built-in cluster role inside of Kubernetes because cluster admin is like stars across the board, right? That's a bad start typically. And our vision for this in the future is really boils down to better logical grouping mixed with just-in-time developer access for humans. This is a little different in service account land where there's not a human, but if I can have some other source of truth, you know, validating my authentication, right? I have MFA, I've used Okta, I've used whatever it is, and I've proven I am who I said I am. How does that kind of transpire into Kubernetes through authorization, right? Like what group am I in now? And how do I get access to the things that I need and nothing more? So what we're working on is that kind of just-in-time provisioning of that access mixed with watching what that entity is doing, right? If I can kind of parse through the logs of Jimmy over some amount of time and see that you know Jimmy has cluster admin or close to it, but he's only ever accessed these resources in this namespace, we can come up with, you know, a closer to least privilege kind of policy for that individual or that group of individuals. So I think like people tend to kind of drop off at IAM. We're getting better at like AWS IAM and GCP and these things and Azure, and then kind of just dump people into Kubernetes and let them do what they will or leave it pretty wide open. So that's our aspiration is and what we're building today is you know a way to provision access that gets you closer to that least privileged nirvana. Can you describe in more detail how you actually hook into a Kubernetes cluster? Yeah. So again, the cluster discovery talked about that. That's just your cloud API. And there's many ongoing conversations from you know, vendor land, us being included of like, what is the best way to actually get the data we need inside of the cluster? And there's opinions all over the place. We have taken the approach that is, you know, we, this should be least amount of friction as possible with the operators of the cluster. Performance is a big deal for us. So we subscribe to Kubernetes API events. So we see, you know, if a deployment gets changed, the, the revision is bumped and you pushed out a new version of your microservice. We see that and then we take that data, 
associate it to, you know, the greater entity itself for that deployment in this example. And we look for misconfigurations or issues with that particular revision. And with that, we're a deployment ourselves. So we're not a daemon set or like a sidecar. We use a single deployment and we get the data we need there. And in the future, there will be other plugins that may trickle over into things that are closer to daemon sets as you get into you know, eBPF and those things, but that's not what we're focused on today. Yeah, so mentioning eBPF, it does seem like a lot of the security vulnerabilities that can emerge involve a network connection. Can you distinguish between network vulnerabilities and vulnerabilities that are more about the standing container themselves? Are Are there some network vulnerabilities that you could enumerate? Yeah. I mean, eBPF is a, an amazing Linux kernel feature, right? Like we're getting very deep insight into things that are happening at a pretty low level. And that's that's useful. There's no doubt about it. I think there's, uh, you know, eBPF is, is not, it's not a Kubernetes feature. So there is this mapping that needs to happen of like what's going on with this container that's part of this pod and it's in this replica set and in this cluster, like we have, you know, there's mapping that needs to happen there in eBPF. The types of data that you can pull out of eBPF is is certainly more at the runtime perspective. Like there was an interactive terminal session opened or, you know, this networking call happened from this workload to this workload. Those are things that are really useful for kind of a reactive sort of like somebody's in my cluster doing things I didn't expect them to be doing. And there is definitely a place for that. The difference is when you look at, you know, kind of the Kubernetes manifests mixed with, you know, the logs that are available mixed with RBAC policies, you tell a different story and and you try to fix any potential problems at the source through better configuration. So there's a world where both of those live together and it's, you know, absolutely a world that we will be involved in. We're just starting our, you know, journey with the configuration side because of the the lower impact. eBPF typically runs as a daemon set meaning it's on every single one of your nodes. You know, it's performant but that doesn't mean it's free of cost from like an operational standpoint. And, you know, we want to make sure that we're providing value to security teams very quickly and you know prepackaging some i would say quasi opinionated packs of rules for them to get started so you know we're taking the configuration route you know and that's uh that's turned out to be you know a, a good choice for where we're at when you think about the design of a kubernetes security control plane you could have designed it such that agents are sitting on all of the Kubernetes clusters and, you know, doing various processes while they're sitting there. Why didn't you take the agent-based approach? Yeah, a few reasons. We, even before KSOC, I was working with big companies kind of helping their Kubernetes security story and kind of some of the feedback I was getting was like, we don't have the appetite to introduce performance, whether it's CPU or memory or, or just 
regular old just distribution of these agents. That is a non-starter at some organizations, I would say a lot of them. So we decided to kind of make our presence in the cluster as simple as humanly possible and put the burden in our side, in our kind of SaaS kind of ETL platform. And that seems to be going over really well because ultimately we have the ability now to iterate faster, have less kind of these, you know, I, I used to work for a company called Signal Sciences and we we had agents, right? We were a web application firewall. So we had agents kind of scattered throughout and pushing new rules or or new features out to these agents. You know, I was that was my core responsibility of my team became very difficult, right? Like it, it's not easy to have major agent kind of revisions. So the more simple we can make our presence in the cluster, the better. And we chose that out of, you know, being able to iterate quickly. We want like a CVE to come out or some issue that you know, our kind of research team detects to build the rule, the policy, et cetera, push it out. Our, all of our customers get that out of the box, you know, on day zero, essentially, without changing everything that's going on under the hood. So it is one way. I think it adds other complexities on our side from an engineering perspective. There's no doubt we have a lot to handle, you know, with networking and throughput and data, but it's turned out to speak to security teams who don't always have the leeway to bring heavy agents into these environments. So it's been a success there. So there's like a ton of tooling and projects that have come out around the Kubernetes ecosystem. And I think the sales process is probably pretty hard because any large enterprise gets pitched by a million different Kubernetes tools every week. What has been the selling point? I mean, you know, for example, there's like Aqua Security has been around forever and well since at least since the beginning of the Kubernetes security world, you know, they have considerable footprints. There are lots of, you know, security vendors in the ecosystem already. First of all, how do you manage to get your foot in the door and how do you compete for security related contracts? Yeah, you're not wrong. There's more noise than I definitely would uh, like to have in this particular arena. Our approach really, it's really not to like go after any of these other technologies in particular. There's actually something to be said, like we could run alongside some of these, right? Like image scanning, for example, a lot of people buy CVE scanning tools and plug them in and they're good to go, right? But that's not exactly the area we're, we're targeting. We will support that feature and some integrations there. But I think as far as like, you know, I'm not going to call it any direct competitors, but we, we really kind of are focused on the security team first. Like that's our network. That's where, you know, I kind of have been working forever. I mean, my co-founder and we focus on ease of use, basically. Like we have had a UX engineer, like from the first day of KSOC's inception, brought on somebody who's done a lot of consumer stuff and B2B stuff and data center things. We are very focused on 
getting up and running quickly without having to know any specific real language or under the scenes configuration. These things should be self-service as much as possible. That mixed with being able to fix the problem at its source and get you know what we're working towards really hard is huge, right? Like I think we've hit this inflection point with security tooling where it's like, stop sending me alerts. I'm over it. Like I can only handle so many Jira tickets. Show me the code that needs to be fixed. So that's again, kind of because of the way we're architected, we have a lot of visibility into that and what the fix is and should be. And our team's built, like a lot of our engineering team has a very strong kind of platform engineering background. And we want to appeal to platform engineers who have to run this stuff day to day and and deal with the pull requests and deal with the installation. So, you know, I think just an overall user-centric flow that addresses problems at like a multi-cluster layer. We treat every company like they're going to have not one cluster where they're installing one thing. It's like always multi-cluster across multiple clouds. And that's kind of our, our UI is centered around your entire like suite of Kubernetes clusters. And I think that's pretty unique. So, you know, we haven't had a lot of friction with like, we buy this other thing, so we aren't going to buy you. It'll come, but you know, we're, we're early and we're, we're building for the future of how people are going to use this thing. What have been the hardest engineering problems when building KSOC? You know, we, because we are not agent centric, we've had to really level up our data processing kind of architecture. We're, you know, kind of heavy Kubernetes users ourselves. That being said, we have microservices scattered about. We have, you know, getting data from point A to point B, choosing the best, most performant, and like at times cost-effective way to do that. That's been challenging. And honestly, like at a kind of human perspective, it's hiring, right? It's uh I think there's a unique skill set we're looking for and we're getting in the groove of that now, but, you know, finding awesome talent and, and people who want to dive in is, has been challenging. We also are distributed across many, many time zones at this point. And, you know, as a young company is from an engineering standpoint is hard, you know, we're remote first distributed team. So we've had to really grow up fast when it comes to being very diligent about our engineering procedures, our sprint planning, everything that comes, you know, the nitty gritty of how things get done and prioritized uh, across the, the span of time zones we're in is not not easy for you know a startup. So yeah, I would say those are the big ones. Do you find that the heterogeneity of different Kubernetes deployments of accommodating all those different deployments is difficult, or is there a consistency to the API and the integration points that makes it simple enough to integrate with the plethora of different types of deployments? We're taking a pretty logical approach to what we support and when. If we're talking about like custom resource definitions and kind of one-off, very custom Kubernetes implementations, you know, we support whatever the API has available, but we have not been hit with anything that we couldn't handle yet. I'll probably eat those words later, but yeah, I think the Kubernetes API luckily 
offers kind of a standard interface for us to interact with. As we expand the product lines, we'll we'll have to deal with wildly different problems. But again, it's like you know, working in the WAF space, which I was at before, that was pretty tough because you're just dealing with HTTP requests. We don't we didn't know anything about the back end. These were just like you're basically just proxying the internet and everything about it. I would say Kubernetes is much more structurally sound than that sort of defense mechanism. So we have a clear path through these predefined APIs that are well-documented to get what we need and do what we need to provide value. So I think time will tell again, but for now, feel pretty good about the standardization of Kubernetes, at least in terms of security. Cool. As you begin to wind down, maybe we could talk about your vision for the future. What's the next most acute pain point that you're planning to work on in building your Kubernetes security suite? Just-in-time access is a huge undertaking. I also think striving towards least privilege, providing mechanisms to get there for people. We've actually had like a lot of great conversations around that and we're, we're building something pretty cool there. Those are immediate term. You know, the future is, you know, what we're hearing and what I tend to agree is like Kubernetes philosophically, I guess, it sits in your cloud typically, but it's not self-contained. So a cluster or, you know, a pod within a cluster, it's out talking to RDS or, or KMS or uses IAM to do this thing. So there's this like Kubernetes at the nucleus of the problem, but how do we apply security and observability to the other parts of the cloud that this nucleus that is Kubernetes is touching? And I think that's the future for us is really like, let's get the blast radius kind of under control and understand how far this thing reaches out. And we intentionally are setting ourselves up to do that with, again, like we already tied into the AWS API and all these other things. That's a natural progression for us. And, you know, some people are even asking like, hey, KSOC, can you just go be the central point of cluster create cluster management, right? Like I just want a secure cluster. Let me click a button. Let me run a Terraform module, let me do something to spin up a cluster that I know is going to be within the constraints of my security policy. It's an interesting problem as well. I think that's a, something we'll, you know, we're at least experimenting with today. Yeah. I mean, that last part, that sounds like kind of a out of scope, right? <laughs> like spinning up clusters? Maybe not. It's probably more of like an integration sort of play where you're piggybacking on some other cluster management ecosystem and you're helping overlay security on top of it. That's probably the better play. I don't think we're going to be in the, you know, kind of the cross plane sort of uh, even, you know, Terraform style implementation, but, you know, people are curious. And then there's always this mix of like AppSec and cloud security. It's like, I want to know about my application security inside of these environments and how like you know, who's talking to it through network, you know, what networking protocols and, and ports are open. That's a different fuzzier area, but it's also interesting to kind of blend the two sort of concerns together. Cool. Well, real pleasure talking to you and it seems like you're off to a really good start with KSOC so far. I look forward to seeing where the company takes you. 
Thank you. Yeah, it's been fun so far. I really appreciate being on the show. I'm a longtime listener. So yeah, this is exciting for me. So thanks again. Thanks, Jimmy.